Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. We are live from the Scottish Conservative Conference, at least in terms of how we're recording this, because we're here in Glasgow. Uh, my name's Conor Matchett, I'm the Deputy Political Editor at The Paper. Here with me, as always, is Alistair Grant, the political editor of the paper. We've been away for a few weeks due to staffing and holidays and all of that fun times. Um, so there's lots to cover today. But we'll start, I think, with the chaos, the shambles that was the Prime Minister attempting to speak to Scottish media earlier today. Alistair, take us through, set the, set the scene, set the context for us as to what happened earlier today. It was probably the most shambolic thing I've ever seen at a party conference, I've got to say. Uh, so this was Prime Minister Rishi Sunak uh, addressing the Scottish Conservative Conference, um, doing his speech and then doing a, a Q&A style thing on stage with the Scottish Tory leader Douglas Ross. Uh, and afterwards he was due to do a, a kind of media huddle, uh, a kind of press Q&A with journalists following his speech. Um, and number 10 had initially tried to limit this to six hand-picked journalists, essentially. Mm-hmm. Six hand-picked newspapers yeah. alongside Press Association, the news agency. Um, and obviously other journalists, including us, the Scotsman, because <laughs> we were not invited, we're not happy about this, and we're not going to accept that. So we gate-crashed it, essentially and they had to U-turn. They were left with no choice but to just let us in. There was a great moment, actually, which is worth mentioning, where we were following the Prime Minister as uh, the Prime Minister's press team down some corridors within the Scottish event campus. And you, Alistair, you, you know, they were trying to stop us. There were arms out and Alistair, political edge of the Scotsman, slithered past on the outside. <laughs> I don't like the use of the word slithered. <laughs> But, uh, Scurried past, maybe is a be- better way. Uh, um, it was quite dramatic, wasn't it? Actually, <laughs> it was just—it was just completely symbolic. And then, to add insult to injury, uh, the prime minister's team then said that they were trying to—they were going to cancel the press huddle. Essentially, it wasn't going to happen, and that Rishi Sunak would only do one pool clip with broadcasters. Uh, they were basically saying there was time constraints. Um, it was completely embarrassing behaviour, to be honest. There was then a massive row between journalists and Rishi Sunak's team. It wasn't clear what was going to happen. There was a kind of a bit back and forth. It was made clear to them that this risked becoming one of the, the main stories of the conference, yep. this lack of transparency. Yep. Um, and there was a vote among journalists, essentially, as to whether we would accept one pool clip with broadcasters, uh, whether this was kind of something that we would accept as a route forward. And unanimously, everyone decided that, no, we were not going to accept that. And there was then a massive U-turn from number 10, from Rishi Sunak's team, 
and the original press huddle went ahead as they wanted it, uh, which still meant that only those six journalists, only those six newspapers handpicked by Number 10 were able to ask questions. So it's the Daily Telegraph, the Scottish Daily Mail, the Press and Journal, Scottish Daily Express, The Sun and The Times. I think I've got them all there. And PA. Although uh, PA didn't get a question. PA didn't get a question. They were just going to be allowed in the room when no one else was. Uh, so everyone else was allowed into the room, but only those six journalists were able to ask questions. Uh, and there was quite a funny moment where uh, a member of the number 10 team essentially said, you can delete all your tweets now about us restricting access, uh, to which some journalists <laughs> literally just laughed. Yep. Um, so completely shambolic. It was just uh, a self-inflicted uh, injury, to be honest, and it has become one of the stories of the of the party conference now. I have no idea why they tried to go down that route. Absolutely, and I mean, it's worth reading out a quick statement from uh, the Scottish Parliamentary Journalists Association, with, which both of us are, are, are members of, and as are our colleagues on, in, in the parliamentary lobby in Holyrood, which says, uh, journalists expect to be able to hold the Prime Minister to account when he is in Scotland as a vital part of the democratic process. Today's actions to restrict access are unprecedented and undermine that important principle. Now, it's worth mentioning that often what happens when the Prime Minister is in Scotland, as we've experienced before with Boris Johnson, is that they tend to come up, they tend to do a government announcement, and they might invite a local paper and one or two of the national papers to do a, a quick press huddle. But that's government business. This is party business. Prime Minister here to talk to the public in terms of the Scottish Conservative public um, and outline his plans for Scotland. Um, it's one of those moments, wasn't it, I think, where we were all in there and we, he, we just heard Rishi Sunak talk about transparency within the SNP and the importance of being open and honest with people and voters, and yet he was his team were restricting access to him to ask key questions. His, he literally, his speech this morning literally started as Richard Sharp was resigning um, from his role as BBC chairman, which is a big political scandal for both the BBC and, and Mr Sunak. kind of undermines all of these arguments and the attack lines that the, S, that the Conservatives have been putting forward around the SNP, doesn't it? And we'll come on to what's happened there later on, but it does. I mean, I've got to say that. I mean, I've been covering politics in Scotland since 2017. Um, and from my experience, when Prime Ministers come up to Scotland, uh, particularly you know, from Boris Johnson, when he came a couple of times I went to events that he was at, uh, of course your time is limited, you do not have much time. But usually it was, everyone's invited, all the members of the Scottish Parliamentary Journalists Association are invited, that's the equivalent of the lobby down in Westminster. Um, and basically you just try and get a question in. And sometimes they do try and handpick the questions that are going to be asked, but usually journalists talk among themselves beforehand, so there's some kind of agreement as to what questions need to be put to mm -hmm. need to be put to the Prime Minister, but you also just try and shout your own question. Um, and at party conferences of the past, I've never experienced uh, them trying to stop journalists from getting into a room like that. It's just completely unacceptable. And I've never experienced it happening before at a Tory conference, at a Labour conference, at an SNP conference. Uh, you would not accept that from the First Minister if they tried to do that no. uh, in Scotland. And it's just completely unacceptable from a Prime Minister. It's just it's, it's pathetic, to be honest. I don't know why they thought it was going to be accepted. And it's worth, it's worth reminding you know, you at home about the, the sort of attack lines that we've heard from the Conservatives in the last few months, particularly, I think most relevantly, would be around the fact that the SNP were trying to keep, keep journalists out of the hustings during the leadership election. You know, this was badged by Douglas Ross, among others, as being the SNP scared of scrutiny. 
I mean, this is, today, is just a demonstration that it's do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, I mean, it's just completely backfired. I don't know if they came up and just thought that, uh, you know, handpicking journalists, they would be able to just take them away from the, the kind of main auditorium where the speech was taking place and get them into another room and other journalists would just be okay with that. Yeah, they would be happy with just, it. Yeah. We'd just accept that was happening. And I think any, any, I'm baffled that any press officer thought that was going to go smoothly. Mm-hmm. I mean, anyone with any experience of the media would realise that other journalists are just going to gate crash it. They're not going to accept being told, you can't go into this room. They're going to try and get in. It's the Prime Minister you're dealing with. It's not some random member of the public. No. It's, it's a, a public figure who has questions to answer. And like you say, particularly on the back of the Richard Sharp news this morning, there's a clear public interest in all journalists being allowed into that room. You can't start picking and choosing who you're going to speak to at a party conference. And it's, it, it is probably worth mentioning that it was a slightly pyrrhic victory for us as, as, as we were in the room when the questions were asked, but Rishi Sunak didn't really say much in answer to the questions that he was asked. I think there were three or four questions about devolution, about uh, Lord Frost, about independence, um, about Richard Sharp. Um, I think at least three of those had pivots to the cost of living crisis, which obviously have nothing to do with the substance of the issues. So we didn't really gain much from the less than six, seven, eight minutes that we had with the with the Prime Minister. I mean, no. I mean, to be honest, you sometimes don't. From, that's not the point, though. That's you not the sometimes point. don't from these things. It's worth saying what he I, actually said. It's also <laughs> worth saying that Rishi Sunak was asked about the chaotic scene. Absolutely, scenes he and, was, yeah. You know, why he'd originally tried to only speak to a hand-picked selection of journalists, and he literally said that's completely wrong. And I'm sitting here talking to half a dozen journalists, as I always intended to do, as if none of the events of the last hour had happened, despite the fact he's talking to a room with two dozen people who were literally there as it happened. <laughs> it was just completely bizarre. And it's, it's, it's threatening to overshadow the whole, uh, certainly day one of the conference. Um, he obviously did eventually take questions, as I mentioned, but you know, Douglas Ross has got a speech later on today that will obviously report fully on scotsman.com and, not, and in the paper. But in reality, the substance of Sunak's speech, of which, of which there wasn't a huge amount, apart from an attack on devolution um, as it is, or at least a suggestion that it shouldn't go any further than it does, it threatens to overshadow the point of this conference for, for the party, which is to set out their stall uh, in the midst of crisis in the SNP. Yeah, I mean, I did a, an interview with Megan Gallagher, the deputy leader of the Scottish Conservatives, just the other day. And one of the points she was making is this is a, a chance for the party to put forward a, an alternative vision for the SNP. They're trying to take advantage of the chaotic scenes within the SNP. Uh, and maybe even a chance to do a bit of a reset. Obviously, last year was extremely difficult for the Scottish Conservatives. We had Partygate, we had the resignation of Boris Johnson, we had uh, uh, chaotic scenes when Liz Truss had a, her short-lived time in power. They were just going from one bad thing down south to another, and there was a lot of fears about how that was going to affect them in Scotland. So they're trying to recover from that, and they're trying to you know, get onto the front foot. They've got Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister. He's reasonably popular as Tory Prime Ministers go in Scotland. They are quite happy with him being in charge. So it was a, a real chance to put forward another vision and it has it has affected that. I mean, I'm sure that you know, tomorrow's papers will also include quite a lot from uh, comments made by Rishi Sunak about devolution, like you say, that it's not appropriate to have any more powers coming to Scotland. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the comments he made about independence and about the higher taxation in Scotland and that potentially causing damage. All those comments will be reported, but you will also have this completely unnecessary row 
uh, taking up newsprint and broadcast time as well. Absolutely, and it's, it's, it's potentially it's a good time to reflect on the the kind of atmosphere within the Scottish Conservatives at the minute, particularly in Holyrood. Um, I wrote a story that many of you at home will have read um, on the Scotsman's website and, and in paper about mutterings. It was put to me about Douglas Ross's leadership um, that they're not very happy with how it's gone, particularly the tactical voting plea and the idea that Scottish Conservatives voters in Labour, SNP marginals should vote for Labour, not the Scottish Conservatives, went down very badly with, with the UK party. Um, what's your sense of how the party is set? Because it feels to me as if they, they feel a little bit lost at the minute. They're lacking a little bit of direction. They're lacking a little bit of fresh ideas that could take on the kind of Labour change narrative that both Keir Starmer and Ansar are bringing to the table and that potentially Douglas Ross is the wrong man to take them through that journey. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two points I've made. The first one is that with the tactical voting route, I think the interesting thing about it is that Douglas Ross was almost just saying the quiet part out loud. Yes. What yes. he's saying about tactical voting is something you often hear from Tory politicians, but also some Labour politicians, basically saying that if there is a strong candidate in a certain seat who will be able to defeat, in their words, the SNP, if you know unionist voters coalesce around them. It's something that has happened when we see that in the Holyrood election, it's something that's benefited the Tories in the past. Yep. Um, so he's he's almost, you know, it's controversial that he would come out and say it, although I think he tried to backpedal on it later and say that's not quite what he meant. Uh, and interestingly, when I spoke to Megan Gallagher, she was basically saying that, you know, Scottish voters are savvy enough to understand the political voting system, which is kind of saying that they know to tactical vote if, if that's what they want to achieve. Um, so I think that row was interesting, but I think you're also quite right that they do feel a bit lost, particularly with Labour having this sense of momentum gathering around them. Yep. Keir Starmer very much seen as the next Prime Minister. Uh, Labour in Scotland hoping to capitalise on that. You hear a lot of optimism in Labour at the moment from people around Anna Sarwar, from Anna Sarwar himself about the number of seats they might be able to win. Um, so I think if you look at that general election next year, you would expect Labour to pick up quite a few seats. You'd even expect actually, even if the overall vote share from the Scottish Conservatives went down, you'd probably still expect them to pick up a couple of seats in areas like Aberdeenshire where there's those really slim mm -hmm. margins that you're talking about. So mm -hmm. there's definitely a sense that momentum is behind Labour and I think the Scottish Conservatives, uh, and I think they are kind of, you can see this actually in some of the stuff they're saying now, have to come up with a, a kind of vision, a policy agenda for themselves. They can't just rely on the fact that, like they have in the past, that if you are you know, a unionist, if you believe strongly in the future of the UK, vote Tory, they have to have something else now. Do you think Douglas Ross is safe as leader for now? I, I would say that there's always whisperings. Mm -hmm. uh, whenever you've got a leader that's been in place during quite a turbulent period, there are always whisperings within parties. I can't see him going anywhere soon. Uh, I don't know who would be the replacing big, him. I was going to say the bigger question, isn't it, is, is who would want the current job of Scottish yeah. Conservative leader, given the fact that they are likely to be out of government in a few years, potentially, you know, ploughing quite a lonely trade in uh, in Holyrood as a minority third or fourth size party. It wouldn't be a particularly fun job for someone from 24 to 29, say. You, you would need someone to, people to start to coalesce around, around an alternative that was offering a concrete 
vision or they a concrete thing they're Davidson. doing they're doing differently yeah someone someone who would be able to say look I'm the person who can lead us to lead us to victory and I'm, I'm just not sure who that would be at the moment well let's now move to Westminster where it's been a busy week as we mentioned the resignation of Richard Sharp this morning Dominic Raab obviously was also forced to resign over bullying claims it's been a tumultuous time to say the least in the House of Commons um, so here's the latest from our Westminster correspondent Alexander Brown Hello and welcome back to the Westminster Section podcast. My name is Alexander Brown and it has been another pretty tumultuous week in Westminster politics. I think the main stories have been, no doubt, the ongoing spats within the SNP over the auditors issue. And then there's also Rishi Sunak's illegal migration bill, something that has passed through the Commons, but not without controversy. So firstly, I think it's worth getting into what's going on with the SNP and the fact that they have until May the 31st have auditors in place or they will require short money and possibly not be able to pay their staff. The row that happened this week was Ian Blackford said he was told by his successor and a man who many feel kind of forced him out, Stephen Flynn, that auditors were in place. And then Stephen Flynn said, no, I didn't say that. Actually, I said that we were trying to get them. They had a big Barney, briefings against each other. And then they shared a picture together on the Commons Terrace with a drink uh, because basically I think they realise it's far more damaging to talk about these things and it's far easier to bury them deep inside and not talk about them at all. But the issue is closed, at least when it comes to infighting, but there are still no solutions to the auditors. And the Scotsman revealed this week, not just to promote one of my own stories, that there can be no extension to the deadline. If the SNP do not have it, they will not be able to say, look, can we have a week, mate? I'm, almost, I'm a bit short, but I'll have the money for you next week. That's not how it works. So trouble continues in the SNP. As for the Conservatives, their Stop the Boats bill, as it's being commonly known, uh, a bit like the uh, Brexit, you know, get Brexit done. It's better to have slogans and actual policy that works. And that's what they've tried. It passed only just actually and not without some rebels from within the Conservative Party. And unfortunately, this also means, as the Prime Minister knows, that you will not be able to, if you are a child fleeing Sudan, where the crisis is at the moment, you would not be able to come to Britain. You would be deported. The Conservative Party know this, uh, amendments were tabled by some backbenchers, but they were then criticised for, you know, going against government policy. And actually, it's about stopping the boat and then, you know, well, they'll soften it later. So essentially, the Prime Minister has caved to the Tory right and sensibles, you know, those far left wingers on the party, such as Czech's notes, Theresa May, say this is actually going to make things easier for the human traffickers and they're siding with the human traffickers against those fleeing here for a better life. So all in all, pretty depressing. And they released also a horrible poster about it that depicted Keir Starmer basically saying, welcome in, come on in. Uh, but given Labour said that, you know, Rishi Sunak was fine with uh, child sex offenders not going to jail, probably call it a draw. Things are bad. Things are always bad. That's your lot. And we lost the podcast awards. So all in all, thank you very much for listening. I've landed on the Brown and see you next time. And thank you very much for that update, Alex. Well, let's let's move on from, from the Scottish Conservatives, given the other news. We, we have been away for a few weeks and a, quite a lot has happened in the world of the SNP and the Scottish Government in that, in that period. Um, obviously, Humza Yusuf is now the First Minister. Um, a big changing of the guard there, even if it is the continuity candidate. But 
I think I think it was my last day before I went on holiday for a week and a half. We had the astonishing, genuinely astonishing scenes of the police erecting what is colloquially known as a murder tent outside the house of uh, Peter Morrill and Nicola Sturgeon, arresting Peter Morrill, the now former CEO of the SNP, and also raiding the SNP HQ. Only for a week and a half later, the treasurer of the SNP to have the same treatment, behold into the police station, questioned, should be noted, both Peter Morrill and Colin Beatty have been uh, released without charge pending further investigation. But the image of the ruling, the dominant party of Scottish politics being raided for potential criminality is something that I don't think either of us ever thought. And I wonder what your thoughts are on, I mean, you were there, you were watching police carrying in these boxes in and out of, of SNP HQ. How damaging is this? And we can't go into a huge amount of detail about the police investigation, but the optics are terrible. Yeah, I think it's a day in Scottish politics I will, I will literally never forget. Um, just incredible scenes, like you say, that blue tent, that blue kind of evidence tent outside of the home that Nicholas Sturgeon and Peter Murrell share in the outskirts of Glasgow. Um, as you say, I was there uh, outside SNP HQ in central Edinburgh pretty much all day, actually, as the police, uh, you know, more than a dozen police, went into the building. Uh, they were in there for a few hours uh, and then came out, as you say, holding holding a, a, a boxes and it was just incredible scenes to have something like that happen. Uh, I think you can't have that kind of thing happen without it causing damage mm -hmm. to the SNP. Mm -hmm. um, I think it, it definitely will have an impact to some degree on them. I think Hamza Youssef probably has the worst entry that any First Minister in Scotland has ever been faced with. He had things like problems in the health service, a perception that education standards have slipped, the ferries fiasco, he had all these problems that the government was dealing with and then separately He's got all these problems within his own party. He had this divisive leadership campaign, more brutal than many SNP members probably expected. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he's had this ongoing police investigation into the SNP's funding and finances and the arrest of Peter Murrell, the arrest of Colin Beattie, both, as you say, uh, released without charge on the same day. Um, but it's just been incredible scenes. And I think it's been interesting, actually, something to maybe talk about how Hamza Youssef has reacted to that. I think uh, on the day after uh, sorry, the day when police swooped on the, the home shared by <laughs> Nicola Sturgeon and Peter Murrell. Uh, the day after that, sorry, uh, Hamza Youssef, the new First Minister, held a, a really unusual press conference in Butte House, his official mm -hmm. residence in Edinburgh, where journalists were basically invited in. Uh, there was tea, oh. coffee, they could help themselves to tonics, caramel, wafers. Very on brand. Sat around <laughs> on uh, sofas, arranged in a kind of rough circle. Mm -hmm. uh, and Hamza Youssef entered the room. It was very informal and journalists could basically ask questions on anything they wanted. Obviously all the questions dominated by the extraordinary scenes of the police uh, the day before. And it's just something that you couldn't ever imagine Nicola Sturgeon having done. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon never shied away from the media. She always did media clips, did long Q&A sessions with the media, but she kept reporters at a distance. She wouldn't have done something as informal as that. And I think even in Holyrood, you know, you've had press doorstepping Hamza Yusuf as he's been exiting the Holyrood chamber and he's been stopping to answer questions and there's been a lot of talk about whether that's damaging to the party because some of the things he said have, has not been helpful. They've kind of generated headlines in and of themselves. But I think the only people who should care about that are spin doctors and party politicians. Everyone else should welcome transparency from the First Minister. Absolutely. And I think it's really worth worth mentioning, actually, that, you know, there's uh, I'm, I'm worth exploring his response to it in terms of the media because he's been understandably kind of 
mocked for some of the phrases that he's he's come out with. He has a he's a tendency, Hamza Youssef, to repeat back this, the the language used by a reporter in a question in his answer, which means you end up with situations where I think one of his lines was, um, "No, I don't think that the SNP is acting in a, as a criminal like a criminal organisation or in a criminal way," um, and you end up he ended up kicking the can every day a little bit further down the road he was tending to make news but having said that he could have said nothing and I think that would probably have been worse I was told by, by one source that he was effectively when Peter Morrow was arrested it should be said to the shock of everyone in the SNP he was offered effectively two strategies by his spin doctors in Butte House he was told we can you can do one of two things you can either speak to the media every single day or as much as you like or you can keep them at arm's length and some and ensure that you don't say as you say as little as humanly possible and to Hamza Yusuf's great credit he chose option A and not option B and as you say it's been an interesting approach I wonder however how how much that is almost down to wanting to be seen as first minister you know he's new to the role he wants to have the public profile of it but also you know it's not a bad time to learn how to do spin spinning if you can't really make it any more worse any worse than it already is i don't know what you think i mean the polls demonstrate a little slip in the snp um support it's slightly accelerated during since police have that's only through one poll but the snp feel like they're on a decline do you think Hamza yusuf's approach has accelerated that or do you think it'll be a more longer term decline for the party, if it declines at all. I, I think one of the interesting things that was said to me by someone close to Hamza Yusuf, who I think is probably the same source that told, uh, said that information to you, was that in some ways he didn't, didn't have that much choice because yeah. of the geography of the Scottish Parliament. Yes, uh, essentially, there's a set of stairs and there's a lobby outside the Holyrood Chamber and that's where all the journalists gather to doorstep and he could have tried to get past them but it would have been filmed, it would have been seen, it would have looked like he was avoiding questions. Yeah. He could have tried to use another route, the journalists would quite quickly have clocked onto that yeah. and again it would have looked like he was kind of on the run, a kind of fugitive within the Scottish Parliament. <laughs> it, would have been, it would not have been a good look for a new First Minister. Yeah. So he kind of had to front up, maybe not to the degree that he's done but he had to do it in some shape or form. So I think that's interesting and I, I'm, I'm not sure the degree to which I, I can totally appreciate some of the criticism. I think Hamza Yusuf is a good communicator. I think even his critics who view him as kind of shallow or out of his depth would admit to that. He is a good communicator. Uh, he shares that with Nicola Sturgeon, but he probably doesn't choose his words as carefully as Nicola Sturgeon does. And he does do that thing of repeating back a question. I think there was one, uh, another good example where he said the SNP were not in cahoots with the police, yes. which immediately became the headline that a lot of newspapers used. Um, but I think he's learned. He is to some degree learning as he goes. And I think you know some some people who criticise uh, his language as stupid or you know ill thought out. I, I wonder how they would do if someone shoved a camera in their face every day and just asked them all these questions. You do you do slip up. It's a fact of life. I think people around him know that. Anyone who is involved in political communications knows that sometimes you do slip up. That's just the nature of these things. Let's um, have a quick pivot away from the government because Hamza Yusuf repeatedly has said that he knew very little to nothing about the various scandals around the SNP's finance. We'll look at the party itself. Now, in the last week, we've had Ian Blackford and Stephen Flynn, you know, previous Westminster leader, current Westminster leader, um, going tete-a-tete, -tete effectively, over 
the lack of auditors and what who told who what and when. Um, the SNP in Westminster is in a very potentially damaging position of not having any short money, that's public money that effectively funds their research team and their press team um, and all of the parliamentary staff and you've also got the problem of auditors at the main party also not having been appointed alongside the drip feeding that seems to be coming out of the investigation about things like the motorhome, the 110k caravan that sat on Peter Morrill's mother's lawn for however long um, and burner phones supposedly or sim cards at the very least and fridge freezers all of these allegations drip feeding out um, is probably I don't think I'm overstating when I say this it's probably the biggest crisis as a political party the SNP has ever faced well yeah I mean it's it's certainly I think the, the words that Mike Russell used even before some of these events actually was it's their biggest crisis in 50 years or whatever he said but as a, as a mainstream political party a party of government quite, I think it's 100% the biggest crisis they've ever faced just because there's so many different elements to it it's you know really serious to have a police investigation ongoing um, and I think you're quite right to point to those scenes in Westminster I thought it was quite extraordinary to have the Westminster leader Stephen Flynn and his predecessor Ian Blackford essentially at loggerheads over whether, whether assurances were given about auditors being in place in time for that deadline. They've got a hard deadline in which they need to submit their audited accounts to get that short money essentially. And if they don't have that, I think it's just 1.2 million, I think, yeah, or something like is, that. Yeah. If they don't have that, staff could be at risk. The, the speed of I think it's always worth stating to people that, you know, who maybe don't understand is, you know, when we when we spend time in Holyrood, certainly in the last few years under Nicola Sturgeon, SNP MSPs are terrified of speaking to the press or have been historically. It's not something they tend to do willingly unless you've got an existing relationship with them. That's completely changed in Holyrood in the last six six weeks since the Nicola Sturgeon's resigned with it. You can speak to SNP MP, MSPs very widely, but the speed at which that kind of self-imposed self-discipline that has been the character of the SNP, both in Westminster and in Holyrood, for as long as they've been in government, has eroded at such a speed, it is genuinely astonishing to watch. Yeah, it's incredible. And you've now got these backbench figures like Kate Forbes, you know, Fergus Ewing, who are quite willing to speak out on things. Fergus Ewing is obviously not foreign in the sight of the SNP's leadership for quite a while now. He will be quite uh, quite outspoken about things. Kate Forbes will choose her language more carefully, but she's certainly someone on the backbenches who does not agree with some of the policies that Hamza Youssef will be pushing forward on things like gender reform, but also on things like highly protected marine areas. Mm -hmm. She will be a bit of a foreign in the sight about that, I think. So to have those kind of groups emerging is, is really different. And, you know, the SNP has always had politicians that will speak to the media. But they've also had politicians, who I remember getting in touch with a, an MSP before this all erupted and they immediately sent what I had texted them to the party's press office yes, who yeah. then got back to me, which I just thought was quite strange behaviour. Yeah. But uh, there we go. That's not normal behaviour, it should be said, for journalist, MS, journalist and politician interactions if we text them. No. It tends to be a personal relationship. Unless it's something highly controversial. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure they let press officers know, but you yes. usually expect to hear back from the MSPs yes. themselves as well. But anyway, yeah, there was always this perception that they weren't that amenable to media, that they didn't really want to speak out against the leadership, they didn't want to cause waves. And a lot of that seems to be seems to be changing. And I think from the point of view of the public, it's good to have backbenchers who speak out on issues. It's good to have, you know, whether you agree with them or not, it's good to have figures like Fergus Ewing who are not afraid mm -hmm. to stand up and say to the Scottish Government, you've got this completely wrong. Mm -hmm. But from the point of view of the party, it's going to be a complete headache. Let's um, 
talked briefly before um, we run out of time uh, due to what's going on in this place in the SEC. Um, but let's talk briefly about Nicola Sturgeon's appearance in Holyrood earlier this week. Um, it's, uh, it was the first time she's she's been there and spoken to the press. The same day that Colin Beattie spoke to the press as well, um, since Peter Morrell's arrest. Um, what did you make of her response? It, it was I thought it was quite interesting that you know she was asked about this, and in the, we've alluded to it already, and you've alluded to it already that she she chooses her language very very carefully. Now I imagine she went over and over and over and over again what she was going to say in response to questions from the from the press, but she also came across as genuinely emotional um, and someone who this this investigation had had impacted quite significantly. I think her phrase was that not in her worst nightmares would she have imagined the SNP in the situation they were in after her resignation. What do you make of that first and foremost but also throwing it forward a little bit and looking in the future? Where do you see her legacy ending up? Uh, so I mean I, I share a lot of what you said there. I think she was she seemed genuinely emotional. Her voice was cracking at times. You could really she was visibly emotional. Um, particularly when she was talking about, you know, not her worst nightmares. She said the experience was very traumatic. I mean, I think, to be honest, if the police turn up at your door and arrest your husband, you are going to be, uh, it's going to be quite a traumatic experience for you. So I think there was a lot of, she did choose her words carefully. Uh, I think it was interesting that she made it quite clear that the police investigation, she is saying, had nothing to do or wasn't the reason for her resignation in the middle of February. There had been a lot of speculation that Maybe she knew the police were stepping up their investigation and that played into why she decided to step down. She's saying that's not the case. Uh, she was also confirming that at the time of her speaking, she hadn't been interviewed by the police yet. Mm -hmm. um, so there was information that she was giving, but there was also quite a lot she couldn't say because of the, the ongoing police investigation. She wouldn't comment, for example, on the camper van at all, this camper van that the, the party bought, mm -hmm. supposedly worth about £100,000 mm -hmm. in the run-up to the 2021 Hollywood election and then didn't use because the COVID rules changed. Um, it was supposed to be a campaign battle bus. So yeah, it was interesting. In terms of her legacy, I think it all depends on what happens. It just, it's impossible to speculate on that kind of thing. And to be honest, I don't think we I don't should. Think really should, no. I think it is a live police investigation. Um, it is live for the purposes of the Contempt of Court Act, so we have to be very careful about what we do do say about it. Um, that is all we've got time for here today in the Conservative Party Conference. Um, thank you very much, Alistair, for joining us this week. Um, thank you very much at home as well for listening. And we'll see you next week, hopefully back in our spiritual home of a random committee room in the Scottish Parliament. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.